millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You haven't changed. In spite of our marriage and your inmost feelings, you're still the same. That's why you stopped seeing him. You felt for him what you felt for Stainer. That's not true. You were attracted to that boy as a man would be to a girl. Laura, Laura, don't go on. For God's sake, stop. Stop now. Hello and welcome back to the BFI podcast. I'm Henry Barnes. Right off the top there, there's a clip from Victim starring Dirk Bogard. Bogard plays leading London barrister Mel Farr who, as a closeted gay man in 1960s Britain, puts his reputation on the line to take on the blackmailers who have driven an admirer to suicide. What did you feel for him? I have a right to know. All right, you want to know. I shall tell you. You won't be content until you know, will you? Till you ripped it out of me. I stopped seeing him because I wanted him. Do you understand? Because I wanted him! Victim, released in 1961, was bold for its time. Four years earlier, the Wolfenden Report had recommended the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality, but it would be ten years before the Sexual Offences Act made private gay relationships between consenting adults legal. Films like Victim were launched into the limbo. Joining me on the pod this episode is Simon McCallum. Simon's the programmer of Gross Indecency, a season of films charting Britain's relationship with on-screen homosexuality, put together to commemorate 50 years since the Sexual Offences Act. Simon, you're screening Victim as part of the season, but what was the film's significance at the time, and how's that stood up today? Well, Victim's a real landmark moment in British cinema, and it's, it's very unusual in that it had a direct impact on the whole public debate around homosexuality leading up to the 67 Act. The team behind it, primarily screenwriter Janet Green, director Basil Dearden and producer Michael Ralph, they were really a sort of socially conscious bunch of people that wanted to make a difference. And following the recommendations of the Wolfenden Committee in 57, they really felt for a lot of these gay men that were being blackmailed and massive problem with blackmail around that time. Um, and, and, and people kind of exploiting the law to take advantage of, of vulnerable men, you know, whether or not they actually were homosexual. Well, if you dig this over, it could end one hell of a scandal. And it wouldn't only be you who came down. Fear is the oxygen of blackmail. People could lose everything if they were exposed as being gay, if they were in either in prominent positions or, or simply, you know, working... It would happen to working-class men as well. And that's something that Victim actually really dealt with in that it was portraying a whole sort of social strata. It wasn't just about the sort of clichés of these aristocratic homosexuals or this sort of, you know, the vice and the, the kind of 
the men from the gutter kind of thing. There was often those two polar opposites that were, were used as cliches, but where Victim's Radical is that it, it sort of has characters quite deliberately written in from each of the, the sort of social classes. Um, so blackmail wasn't just something that was experienced by by the rich or aristocratic, although that was obviously the main target. Um, it, it was sort of used to get one over on on a lot of men at that time. The fact that there was a, f a mainstream film out there that was tackling this topic was a massive step forward. So a really important moment, and it was actually the first time many gay men particularly had seen themselves sort of portrayed on screen relatively sympathetically. I can't help the way I am, but the law says I'm a criminal. I've been to prison four times. Couldn't go through that again. Not at my age. I'm going to Canada. I've made up my mind to be sensible, as the prison doctor used to say. Don't care how lonely, but sensible. It was the first English-language film to use the word homosexuality on screen. Yes, yeah, it, it, it was. I mean, that although there had been moments in, in cinema and on uh, early British television before that that had sort of, like, covertly looked at the subject, they'd never really been able to explicitly say it. So the, it, it's incredible that they actually managed to sort of negotiate with the censors to actually allow this to even be mentioned. And, and they did have some sort of wrangles with the, you know, the BBFC, as we know it today, um, around kind of how explicitly they could talk about this topic. And it, it certainly wasn't plain sailing. And when you said earlier that the film had an impact on the legislative process, could you describe what the impact was? Yeah, I think because, I mean, Wolfenden itself in 57, that committee was set up um, because the public debate had really intensified around the treatment of, of gay men. After the war, there was a real witch hunt, a sort of renewed witch hunt against gay men in particular in this case. Um, which actually Churchill was supportive of. People don't really realise that he was actually quite homophobic himself, as were a lot of the key figures in government around that time. And there were very high-profile trials, so people like Peter Wildblood, the journalist, was involved in the, the whole Montague case and was arrested and in prison for a year. And he became one of the very few people to testify to Wolfenden about his experiences of being a gay man. And I think he was the only one of the three or four of the men that actually was publicly... I, agreed to be identified um, and and so his 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 testimony actually really fed into that whole debate film and tv were actually a crucial part of that whole you know journey very slow but important journey towards you know some kind of equality or the beginning of a journey towards equality and i think the fact that people were actually discussing it much more in public actually then sort of pushed the government towards taking some kind of action Look at this. Negligee department dropped 14% since April. Gowns, April down 15.5%. Cosmetic department going along fine till April then. Boom. When did you come here? April, sir. Well, there you are. It seems you disturbed the female star. Can you tell us how Dirk Bogart got involved in the film? I mean, he was started out as a teen idol as such, right, and then moved into more serious fare. Yeah, so he, he was actually quite keen to get rid of this this teen idol image. He was nicknamed the Idol of the Odeons in the 50s and had, had been mainly doing fairly sort of lightweight roles that, that, you know, appealed to families and younger audiences. And he had a really hardcore sort of teen 
teen girl following and probably some teen boys as well. Um, and he was actually a little bit, I think he felt a little bit above some of the roles he was given. And this was the sort of time when um, in the studio system, you know, similar to America where they were on long-term contracts and they they didn't have the kind of control over the roles that they were they were doing that, that you know, some actors would take for granted today. So he sort of wanted to shed this nice, cosy image, this, this, this teen idol image. And so films like Victim were really important to him to take on, to kind of tackle that and to, to move on to more serious fare. Um, but it, it's important to stress what a risk this was, this particular role, which actually most, pretty much all the other major actors had turned down or wouldn't touch with a barge pole, because um, it, was, it was the most explicit look at the subject of homosexuality that really anyone had attempted in British cinema. So he was really putting his professional and his personal sort of credibility on the line. He could have not had work anymore. He could have been, if he had actually been implicated himself in, in being homosexual, there could have been consequences for him. So for someone of that high profile to take this on and really take the film to another level was, should, you know, we, we can't forget what he did there. It's, it's really important. In modern times, there's been a lot of writing talking about Bogard's own place in the gay community and that he was in a long-term relationship with a man but never felt like he could come out of the closet or at least didn't want to. I was wondering what his consideration was doing these kind of films that were, as you say, very, very close to the line and politically active and at the same time not feeling like he could truly express who he was in open society. Well, Bogard gets a lot of flack and I think actually really quite unfairly from including from a lot you know many gay people over the years have, have criticized him for being closeted but I think we're, we're often imposing a modern day viewpoint in, in implying and suggesting that he should have somehow come out when that just wasn't something that really almost anyone could do at the time let alone somebody in that kind of high profile position so he essentially just separated out his personal and public lives. He, he saw them as two totally separate things. He, he was in a long-term relationship with um, Anthony Forward, who was a former actor himself, and they lived together for many years until Tony's death in 1988. But he didn't see that that was something he had to put on show to the public. And I think he gets too much flack for that, really. So he saw that taking part in things like Victim was enough. That was his contribution. Um, he obviously subsequently was involved in other roles that, that have kind of gay overtones or undertones. And, and you know, he, he then went on to work in real sort of art house cinema and take on some really, you know, really quite out there roles. So I think he did enough for the community. He certainly did more than most. He really put his, his neck on the line. OK, let's hear from Bogard. This clip is from a 1983 interview with the actor that took place at the National Film Theatre, now known as the BFI Southbank. Frustratingly, Bogard doesn't talk about Victim in this interview, but we've included a few clips of him here just so you can get a sense of the man. This is Bogard talking about working with director Joseph Losey on The Servant. Written by Harold Pinter, the film told the story of a wealthy Londoner, played by James Fox, who hires Bogard's character as his manservant, only to see the power balance between them swing over the course of the film. He's a very grumpy man, Joe. Is he? Mm, terribly grumpy. But very close, we're very close. But the funny thing about really uh, working with Joe, I mean, he, he first of all found me, or at least I, was, I found him, I suppose, in 1951 when I was called the 
idol of the Odeons. <laughs> well, you can laugh, but I jolly well was. And okay, 51 is a long time ago. But Joe wanted help to make a movie because he'd been thrown up by McCarthy from America. I was bankable, and they sent the script to me. It was a bad script. Joe knew it was a bad script, but we made it together, and we had a kind of funny rapport. We made it in a studio called Nettlefold, which I think has now been taken over as a housing estate or something. And it was so lousy and so bad that we used to go and shoot a gun through the roof to keep the sparrows off during sound takes. <laughs> That's how we made Sleeping Tiger. So the years went by, and I said it'd be nice to work together one day. We never did. It was ten years. And then he found the servant. But he, we'd had it floating by. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But for quite a long time, but in those days, I was very much younger, and I was going to play the boy. By the time we got to making it in 1961, <laughs> Uncle had put on age to some degree, and I was too old. So I said, well, I'll produce it with you. And he said, no, we've got to have somebody playing a servant. And I said, well, let's have Fred Richardson. He'd be super. And he said, no, we, we have to have a film name, you know, because there's no one in the movie. We hadn't got any money. We had an unknown boy I found on television called James Fox. And the only, only bankable thing we had was a lady called Sarah Miles. And that's all we had, and a very good script by somebody called Harold Pinter. Mm. So, so we went on that, and I grumpily agreed to play Serve, which is very fortunate for me. Simon, you were talking earlier about how there's almost a kind of modern attitude that Bogart should have done more as a gay man at the time. Do we cast that same kind of aspersion onto the films he was in? Do we tend to see everything as homoerotic? I think what we know about Bogart's life now obviously does, in hindsight make us sort of reevaluate his his appearances and i think as gay or queer viewers more broadly we're used to doing a bit of our own detective work because the earlier back you go in cinema and tv the more sort of coded the queer characters and plot lines were so we're sort of used to going back and particularly when we're working with archive film sort of unpicking some of those those fleeting glimpses of what we think could be kind of queer people or characters or um, storylines and so with with Bogard's career there's various appearances beyond victim that are, are not quite 
as explicit in tackling the subject of homosexuality, but you have something like The Servant, where he, 1963, so it's after victim, but it's much more kind of coded. Some people kind of interpret it much more clearly as, as being about class rather than sexuality, but there's definitely a way of reading the film that you, you, you can see this central relationship between him and James Fox as being homoerotic or... Um, in some senses sort of sadomasochistic as well. So it's a really interesting one, that. And then later he took more clearly, you know, queer roles, like in Death in Venice was a particular example where um, he's, he's playing a gay man, an elderly gay man. Um, so he got more and more sort of fearless as time went on, really. Go away immediately, don't delay. Please, I beg you, take that seal and your daughters. I implore you. Please. Venice is gripped by pestilence. Let's hear Bogard talking about death in Venice. This was Lucchino Visconti's 1971 film about a composer who becomes obsessed with a beautiful young boy as Venice experiences a cholera epidemic. One night we had to go and shoot in a tiny little dirty square, very dirty square, in, in the centre of Venice, in the, in the slum area near the docks. I had one white suit. We were very poor. It was pouring with rain. They'd filled the square with, with garbage cans of rubbish to make it look like the plague in 1910. We had real rats running around and everything. And there was a wellhead, one of those very beautiful Renaissance wellheads, in the middle of the square. And I had to go and lean against it and think of life's futility and hopelessness and fate and uh, laughed to myself at my own idiocy. In doing so, I had to slide down the side of the well and lie prone on the ground in a white suit, in pouring rain, with every, the whole of Venice's garbage around me. <laughs> and I knew that if I didn't do it properly, we were done. In one take? Because it had to be one take. Yeah. Because that white suit would never survive. <laughs> And it didn't survive, and I did the take wrongly. I was so worried that I was nervous. <laughs> and I heard this wretched Lucina's voice saying wretchedly through the rain and all my snot and everything. He said, no, no, Bogard, Bogard, too young, you're too young. So, disaster. I had a white suit on, covered in mud. But at the same moment, the entire unit, everyone, came rushing around with great handfuls of white chalk saying, bravo, bravo, bravo. <laughs> and I was smothered in white chalk from head to foot, and it was absolutely wonderful. And we did another shot, and I got it right. And he suddenly did something that he used to do so incredibly. He'd give you a reward, a, a thank you. But it, it never came the way you thought it would. And he suddenly said, book out. I was filthy. I was covered in snot, chalk, muck, everything else. And he took me away, put his arm around me, he said, I have one little cadeau, a little cadeau for you, a present. And in a corner of the square, there was a very old, tumbled, narrow house with washing all around it and kids leaning out, staring down, which I never would have noticed. And he said, you see, there's my present. This for you. It's the house of Marco Polo. That was his present. And it was very moving, and no one knows it's Marco Polo's house. They haven't got it in the guidebooks. But he knew it was. And, and he wanted that. simply to share that with me. 
We've talked about filmmaking as a political act, and I was wondering if you saw Gross Indecency, the season itself, as a political act, the fact that the BFI is putting it on. Definitely. I, I think for an institution like the BFI to be marking this anniversary with a major two-month season is is a political statement. It is It is looking back at the situation and the contribution that film and TV made to the debate. You know, the season's going from the late 50s, so just after Wolfenden, up to the late 70s, sort of pre-AIDS epidemic. So we're covering quite a specific period. We're going from the very first, what we think is the first surviving or earliest surviving British TV drama with a gay theme, which is called South, starring Peter Wingard. And then we're finishing with Nighthawks, which is the first really explicitly gay British feature film that sort of looks at the gay experience in Britain. So so it's covering that sort of time period and, and you've got sort of 67, the 67 Act bang in the middle. The 67 Act in some ways gave a bit of permission maybe to filmmakers to be a bit more out there and possibly in some ways a bit more exploitative in, in, in looking into queer lives. Really what it was doing was decriminalising consensual sex between two adults over 21 in England and Wales, in private, not including members of the armed forces, etc. So there's a lot of caveats involved. So it's important to note that it was very partial and it was a starting point, very much a starting point rather than an end point in any kind of journey towards equality, which we're still on. We're not We're not at the end point yet, I don't think. So it, it it's an interesting kind of moment in history and, and it actually led, particularly people like Peter Tatchell argue that it led to an increase in prosecutions rather than a, a decrease and that gay men were actually persecuted um, even more in some ways afterwards because of interpretations particularly around what meant in private, because of the age. You know, the age of consent didn't come down until much more recently. So, um, in, you know, to be equalised with heterosexuals. So um, I think it is just important to make that point as we mark this anniversary that this was, was a starting point. It, it, it was very much not, um, you know, that's it. You've got your equal rights. Goodbye. And what's your impression of the modern scene now in terms of how film and TV particularly, I guess, is dealing with homosexual relationships on screen? Well, I think progress has been slow and also not a constant either. There's this idea that there's been this kind of progression, you know, this clear, solid progression upwards towards equality, which just totally isn't the case because obviously we hit the 80s and then a, a, a renewed tide of homophobia, the AIDS crisis um, in there as well. Um, all linked together to really oppress queer people again. So the 80s is, you know, I feel almost we need to do a part two of Gross Indecency and look at the 80s and 90s as well. Um, next year's the anniversary of Section 28, um, which came in, uh, yeah, 30 years ago uh, next year. So that's, a, that's I think, a real opportunity to, to kind of hopefully revisit this, but um, to, to see the kind of ebb and flow of progress and I think now there's still a lot more work needs to be done there are a few more sort of out gay actors or queer actors um, but there's still very little about trans representation um, queer people of colour are just almost invisible still on our screens in mainstream media particularly um, and, and we have even looking back with the period we're doing with Grace Indecency we've we have found some of those very isolated moments of, of breakthrough. So we have a film called I Want What I Want from 1972, 
which is about a trans woman's experience and journey and transition um, from this sort of very effete, bullied young man into this, you know, much more happy, fashion-loving character called Wendy. Um, and there's, there's problems with it. It's not entirely unproblematic as a film, but it was incredibly sympathetic to the character. And so what we wanted to do is show that, yes, there still needs to be a lot of progress, but you can look back and and other members of the wider LGBT community can can see these moments in our, our sort of on-screen history that, that are, are breakthroughs. That's it for this episode of the BFI podcast. My thanks to Simon McCallum for joining me. The gross indecency season continues at the BFI South Bank until the end of August, with screenings of Victim running daily until the end of July. The film is also available online via the BFI player, as is a collection of related films called LGBT Britain. Please like and subscribe to the BFI podcast on Apple Podcasts and check out our SoundCloud page for all of our previous episodes. You can follow me on Twitter at Henry H. Barnes and follow Simon at Simon McCallum one Our producer is the unbeatable Peter Sale, and you can find more info on Pete at petersale.co.uk. Finally, our theme music is a track called Throwback Jack, written and performed by Tim Garland and used under licence through Audio Network. Apologies for the delay between episodes recently. I've been off working on the release of my own co-production. He's called Gus, and he's just turned one month old. We'll be back on a more regular schedule in two weeks' time. Until then, thanks very much for listening.